Good morning. My name is Eric Newcomb. Uh, you can see a picture of my family. My wife JJ and I have been in China now for 16 years. Uh, we have four kids, Noah, Ian, Ellie, and then there's an eight and a half year gap. We thought we were done, uh, but God gave us Owen. And uh, so that's a picture of our family. And we're excited to be here. I'm excited to have the opportunity this morning to share with you guys. The last couple of weeks, we've been studying Moses, uh, Moses' song. Uh, we're looking at the, the life of Moses and at the end of Moses' time. And so we're going to look a little bit today about Moses and, and the death of Moses and, and the promised land. So, but before I do that, I wanted to share a story. Imagine... Imagine 1999, Christmas Eve. I don't know where you guys were in 1999, but I was working at the time in Pennsylvania, and I was home in, in my hometown in Maryland for Christmas to spend with my family. And this was the first time that I had ever brought a, a girlfriend home with me. And so I had brought a, a, my girlfriend home with me, and so all was right with the world. Uh, not only was it a, an important time, uh, because this was the first time I introduced a girlfriend to my family, but it was an important time because this was the day that I was going to ask her to marry me. And so I was excited. I had a lot of anticipation. I was nervous. And I had, I had it all planned out. There was a park near my house that has a lake, and it was just starting to snow, and I thought I would walk her around the lake. In China, there's a, a saying uh, Yoshan Yoshui, which means if it has mountains, if it has water, it's, it's very beautiful. Uh, this place had it all. This was the perfect location. So I had bought a, a, a dozen roses, and uh, I took my girlfriend to the park. But what she didn't know is for the last several years prior to that, somebody had challenged me, you know, Eric, what kind of girl are you looking for? And so I decided to make a top 10 list of the top 10 characteristics that, that I would want in my future wife. And so what I did is I, I had that dozen roses, and as we started walking around the lake, I took one rose out, and I handed it to her, and I said, one of the things that I really like about you is you have a strong walk with the Lord. And she didn't know this was from the list I had been praying for, but I had talked about her, her walk with the Lord and how she depends on the Lord and how she draws other people to the Lord. And I took about 10 minutes explaining how I saw that in her life. And then after that, I took a second rose and I handed it to her. And I said, one of the things that I like about you is you have a great sense of humor. And I explained times that she thought made me laugh and times that I thought she was being funny and uh, times that I made her laugh and, and so with each rose I explained, I like, uh, one of the things I like about you is that you're deep but lighthearted and with each, every rose that I gave her uh, I explained a different characteristic and why I saw that in her life. So it took me about an hour and a half, pretty romantic, right? So I get down and I have two roses left. And so with the 11th rose, I hand it to her and say, I've never said this to a girl before, but I wanted to say I love you. And then I explained why I love her, which the previous hour and a half hopefully explained some of that. 
Uh, and then with the last rose, I got down on one knee and I asked her to marry me. And you know what she said? She said no. So that's a little bit about my life. Uh, so just so you, did, so you don't despair, empathizing with me and the pain that, that came from that, uh, JJ finally did say yes, uh, but it was about six months later and the third time I had to ask her. But three times is a charm. Maybe sometime you can corner her and ask her why she would say no to me, but uh, yeah, in the end, the Lord used it. But Moses, Moses wasn't as fortunate. Um, well, a couple reasons. One, he didn't get to marry JJ. And uh, another is he never actually got to go into the promised land. Have you ever wanted something so bad, you've hoped for it, you've planned for it, you think you really have to have it, but then reality hits, and that's not what happens. I'm sure you can relate. We don't always get what we want. I'm sure you can think of something. It's pretty difficult. Moses had seen and done amazing things, or the Lord had done amazing things through Moses. Led the people out of Egypt, walked on dry land through the Red Sea. He led them through the desert for 40 years. And now here he stands on the brink of the promised land. He'd gotten them all the way here. Through all that, Moses' anticipation must have been through the roof. Going through all the different struggles and trials, the harsh climate, I mean, it's a desert. The weight of leadership, everybody looking to him. I'm sure you can relate to that in some ways. I can relate to that, just trying to get my family of six on an international flight is, is super stressful. Uh, several days beforehand of packing and repacking and weighing bags and packing again and reweighing bags and my wife buying more stuff and us reweighing bags and, and then us going to the airport and moving 14 checked bags and six carry-ons and hopefully four kids uh, through security and then we get on the plane and inevitably one of my four kids throws up on the plane and most likely also on me. And, and then you've got the hours and hours and hours of the flight. Usually what I start thinking when I'm in the middle of it, why am I doing this? And then I take that thought captive and then I, I change it to, it'll be, all be better when we get there. Well, Moses wandered, wandered the desert for 40 years and he didn't just have a family of six. He had the, his entire people with him. I wonder how many times Moses must have thought, it'll all be better when we get there, once we get to go into the promised land. Well, let's look at his story. So we'll pick it up here in Deuteronomy 32. On that same day, the Lord told Moses, go up into the Abram range to Mount Nebo in Moab, across from Jericho, and view Canaan, the land I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites and at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. 
Therefore, you will not see the land. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. Now, how hard that must have been for Moses. How he must have longed to cross that finish line and to enter into the land. It'll be better once we get there, he must have been telling himself. Well, I'm sure you're worried able to find something that you, did, that you don't get. Uh, when I asked earlier, surely you have something that we don't always get what we want. How do you handle disappointment? I'll tell you a little secret about my life. I've gotten really good at burying it deep inside. I'll just ignore it. Eh, it'll go away. I'll be fine, no problem. Do you tell yourself that too? I also say, I can't let other people see that I'm disappointed, especially if that disappointment's with God. That would make me look like a bad Christian. I can't, I can't let other people think that about me. And I can't let God see that I'm disappointed with him. Well, it's been a long process for me of studying scripture and examining my own heart. But I've come to the understanding that I can't bottle it up inside. God is a loving father. And he, and he wants me to be real and honest with him. He wants me to approach him. And he's very grace, gracious with me. He wants me to tell him when I'm in pain. He wants me to tell him when I'm disappointed. You know, as a dad, like I said before, I have four kids. That's what I want from my kids. I want to engage their hearts. And that's what God wants for us. He wants to engage our hearts and hear. Not to bury it and thus move farther away from the Lord, but to move towards him in truth and vulnerability. Moses must have been very disappointed, not only that he wasn't able to cross the promised land, but he probably was very disappointed himself, uh, and probably in some ways disappointed that God's not allowing him. One thing I do find interesting about this passage on a side note is I often forget that Moses is the author of Deuteronomy. Moses is the one that wrote the book. He doesn't try to blame the Israelites. He doesn't try and record a favorable recount of his actions, of his story, which actually later in the book of Psalms, which we'll look at later, he does that, or the psalmist does that on Moses' behalf. He blames the Israelites, but Moses doesn't do that. He owns it. He quotes the Lord exactly as the Lord said. He doesn't add any excuses for his own actions. I find, it, I find that very interesting. How Moses must have longed to step foot in the promised land. You know, when the Disneyland theme park was opened many years ago, uh, somebody said, it's too bad Walt Disney isn't here to see it. And one of the Disney executives said, oh, he saw it. That's why it's here. Disney had a vision. He said, if you can dream it, you can do it. And... Uh, that's why it was here. He turned that into a reality. He, and, and as a result, we're able to spend lots and lots of money that we don't have on a, on a vacation that's a lot of fun, hopefully. Um, but Walt Disney said, if you can dream it, you can do it. Moses might not have stepped in the promised land, but he definitely saw it. He definitely understood. He saw it both literally from the mountaintop, but also figuratively. He saw that the promised land really is a relationship with the Lord. Exodus 33, uh, it shows you that Moses learned that it's not about the destination, but it's about the relationship. 
He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Maybe Moses didn't enter the promised land, but he did enter the Lord's presence. Disney also went on to say, you can design and create and build the most wonderful place in the world, but it takes people to make that dream a reality. Moses didn't enter the promised land, but he prepared his people. He poured into Joshua, and Joshua led the Israelites. And we'll look at that a little later. But today I want to ask three questions. What was the promised land? Why wasn't Moses able to enter it? And what else can we learn from the life of Moses? So what was the promised land? About a year ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to spend two weeks in Israel. And it was amazing to walk where Jesus walked, to see different things and to learn. Um, but you can show the next slide. Just want to hit the next slide. The next one. Okay. So here's a picture of my wife and I. In the background is the Dead Sea. And on the back of the Dead Sea is a mountain range. And actually, that's the mountain range that uh, is mentioned here that Moses was taken to, to to look into the Promised Land. So Moses is actually looking over the Dead Sea. We're standing in Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea was. Here's a picture of the wilderness. I don't know if you can see, but there's not a lot of plants. The southern part of Israel is very dry, very dead. Uh, there's actually a saying, if you want to get rich, head north. If you want to be wise, head south. And Jerusalem and most of the promised land that we think of is very much desert-like. And so my wife is going to share a little bit about some of her observation that she made while we were there. You can, while she comes up, you can go to the next slide. And you can see the harsh environment of, the, of Israel. Um, so this was a letter that I wrote to friends in the States after we came back. Um, I was struck immediately by the geography. Israel is a harsh place, and no one lives there without fighting against the environment first. This was noted again and again as we had visited site after site. Our guide would comment, and how do we know this is the location of blank city or blank battle? Because it happened on this mountain range, and the only spring in a 20-mile radius is at the bottom of that hill. Um, water was and is life in Israel. Think how many times Jesus referred to himself as the living water. To help you imagine a country made... Oh, thanks. Sorry, I just noticed the picture. I was going to motion to the one. Um, Imagine a country made of rock, beautiful white rock, but rock nonetheless, dotted with springs. When we visited the mighty Jordan River, it was disappointing and enlightening and almost comical. Eric could have thrown me bodily across it. It's probably about as wide as most of your living rooms. Because it's a border between two countries, they've put a fence right through the middle of it to keep people from just wading across. Yet this is the greatest river in the entire country, and if you look on maps in the whole surrounding area. And it is true that now it's used, there's a lot, it's used for irrigation, um, but it's still a very narrow, small channel. I think I was pictured larger, much larger. Everywhere we went, we saw archeological digs. In fact, in Israel, no one is allowed to build or dig without first paying for an archeologist to come and excavate the land. If something important is found, you're forbidden to build. Because, as our tour guide noted, 
everywhere is a tell or an archaeological site in Israel. There is simply no moisture or vegetation to destroy buried history. On the second to last day, we had gone back down to the Jordan River near the Dead Sea. Jerusalem was hot, but being in the mountains, its temperatures were comfortable. But due to the unbelievable change in altitude, the Jordan River was around 112 degrees Fahrenheit, though we had traveled less than an hour. It was towards the end of the harvest season, so think American October. I began talking with the tour guide about the incredibly harsh environment, and I finally got the courage to say, I don't mean to be rude, but this doesn't seem like the promised land. And he gave a very knowing nod. Yes, he replied. I've noticed that Christians have a very different understanding of the phrase, the promised land, than a Jew does. And then he explained. To a Jew, the phrase, the promised land, simply means the land which God promised to the Jews, which we received from the Lord. And after having just toured a large portion of the land, I caught my breath, because this land wasn't a gift. It actually seemed more like a curse. It was hard and harsh, and all the countries surrounding it were constantly at war to possess it. Never did we see a site that we did not learn about multiple countries who once possessed that exact piece of land. And at that same moment, it struck me, God picked this land to tell his story. It wasn't picked for the Israelites and for their ease. It was picked by the Lord for his glory. Remember the Jordan River and the heat? It's a few miles from there that a cave called the library was found. So actually, in the second picture, when Eric noted the hills in the background, he said that's actually where Moses was commanded to climb up and look in to the promised land. Um, when, where Eric and I are standing, we're looking over this tiny little, very deep, though, gorge, and we're looking at the cave that is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's how close the two are. And when Moses climbed, he was literally looking to the land that would once hold the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, it is a few miles from, or sorry, remember the Jordan River, the heat? It's a few miles from there that a cave called the library was found containing some of the oldest pieces of the Old Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And how did they survive at Qumran? It wasn't simply that God miraculously preserved them for us. God chose for his people to live in a hostile land, to struggle, to face deprivation and outside enemy forces. And I am now quite sure, in part, because his story would not be destroyed, but it would survive for me and for others to see. Not just in scrolls, but whole towns and artifacts, locations and customs. This harsh and very unrelenting land was livable, but only just. However, what it does excel at is preserving history. It was like being hit with a spiritual two-by-four. God had picked pain and suffering for his chosen people so that the world might be blessed. And I felt God asking, can you believe me for more? Can you believe me for the world, JJ? Can you trust beyond, beyond your lifetime or your children's lifetime? It's not that I'm unaware of your pain and suffering or confusion. I'm aware it makes no sense, and I am aware it even seems cruel at times. But it is for the good of all people I do these things. And it was an invitation. And at that same moment, I think it also released me from that strange feeling that my generation succumbs to, that we're just not enough. I need to do more or be more. My generation was taught, you can change and save the world. <laughs> 
Um, yet sometimes just choosing to live a normal life, how or where God has asked you, is really doing something like the Israelites did. One other thing really struck me as well, the unique way that our guide had phrased it. It is the land which God has given or promised to the Israelites and the Israelites have received. It harkened back to that other feeling of being rather than doing. And I heard God calling out to me in the word receive. And I knew there was something there. The next day we were at the Wailing Wall, and it was the day for bar mitzvahs. And our guide stood with us and explained, this is the ceremony where Jewish boys receive the Torah. And that's when it hit me. Over and over and over, our tour guide kept using that phrase. The Jewish idea was that God had done something and the Jews were simply receiving it. Um, it really struck me as an American because I think we would phrase it more like this. This is the day that a Jewish boy commits to obeying Jewish laws and following the Torah for the rest of his life. Do you see that difference? I'm still kind of struggling to put it into words, but at that moment, the Holy Spirit began whispering in my heart as I watched a boy carry a massive Torah case that required the help of three grown men and I heard the Holy Spirit whisper, to as many as have received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. I felt like the Lord was saying, it's always been this way, JJ. I am doing something, and you need only receive it. But so many are unwilling. Will you receive what I give? Thanks, JJ. Yeah, I grew up outside of D.C., and on, on the East Coast, uh, there's lots of history. I go to these different Civil War battlefields or Revolutionary War places, and it's all pretty much grass fields now. Uh, because of the moisture and everything, uh, nothing is really all that preserved well. Uh, but here we are in, in Israel, not just a couple hundred years old, but thousands of years old, and yet, because of the environment, we're able to enter into to the world that Jesus was in. And what a gift. But that gift is because people were willing to receive, the Jews were willing to receive that, that hardship. And what, a, what also a, a great example of salvation. Uh, it's not what we do, but it's what we receive. It's the inheritance. So why was, so my second question is, why wasn't Moses able to enter the promised land? In the Bible, there are two very similar stories. Upon first reading them, you might actually think they're the same story, but they're actually very different. First, let's look at Exodus 17. It was early on in the desert journey. They had just left Egypt. They had set out from the Red Sea. In the previous chapter, God had just given them manna and quail. Uh, so let's read what happens. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from, the place, from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die from thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff 
with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is not the Lord, is the Lord among us or not? So what do we see from this passage? Well, the people are thirsty and they're angry. And specifically, they're angry with Moses. Do you have ever, ever have people that you're leading looking to you for answers? Maybe they're angry with you. Well, what does Moses do? He cries out to God, and God hears him. God then tells him to hit the rock with his staff. The people have their water. Moses led well. And this place will be forever known as Meribah because the people quarreled with God and doubted that he was among them. It was the people. Later in their journey, the Israelites send out 12 spies, and then they refuse to go into the promised land. And so that sets them on a, on a journey of 40 years wandering in the desert. This poor decision kind of forces them to wander for, for 40 years, and lo and behold, they're right back at the exact same spot almost 40 years later. So the second time we're here, Numbers 20, is actually at the very end of the 40-year journey. So they're back at Meribah, and the people are thirsty again. It's been 40 years. And uh, so let's look and see what happens in Numbers 20. And you can try and see if you can see the difference between Numbers 20 and Exodus 17. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. Then Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell, fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Very similar so far, right? The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that, they will, that their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he, had, he was proved holy among them. So lots, a lot is similar, is it not? Moses is faced with the same pressure from the people. Moses seeks the Lord again, but this time the Lord does not tell Moses, strike the rock with his staff. This time Moses tells, or the Lord tells Moses, speak to the rock. Psalm 106 remembers it this way. 
By the waters of Meribah they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses. Because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. Trouble came to Moses because of them. The people looking to Moses and the pressure of leadership. Moses didn't follow what the Lord was telling him to do. The Lord told him, speak to the rock. Moses decided to hit the rock with a stick. Why did he do that? It seems like he could have easily tried the whole speaking thing first. But instead, he chose to, to use the stick, use the staff. Well, why? Well, honestly, I can relate to Moses. I feel the stress at times of others looking to me to solve their problems. I'm a people pleaser. I struggle when there's any type of relational tension. I want others around me to be happy. I heard years ago, a happy wife is a happy life. And that's what I try and live by. That seems great, doesn't it? I know I'm the husband of the year right here. But actually, it's not. It's just my way to control other people. It's a subtle form of manipulation wrapped in a smile. So what are you saying to me, Eric? Are you saying that I shouldn't be nice to people? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what is our motivation? Is it out of genuine love? Or is it often like me, out of my own fears and insecurities? It's not about how do I love other people, but it's often, I think, in my own heart, even though I don't want to admit it, it's how do I love others so that they will love me back? Or how do I love others so they will give me back what I, what I want from them? And Moses, he really struggled with all these people looking to him. And so he decided, I'm going to go with what, what, what I've seen successful in the past. Even he wanted results. You know, one thing I'm amazed, actually, as I studied the passage, is the Lord actually allowed water to flow from the rock. Moses did what the Lord didn't want to do, and yet water came forth. And I think it's easy for me to trust in things that I've seen successful in the past instead of asking what is the Lord asking of me right now? It's easy to trust in ourselves, in our own actions, in our own strengths. But at times, it's hard to depend on the Lord, especially when others are depending on us. You know, I've been growing in that dependence. It's been a lifelong process. Instead of loving my wife and kids and my own strength, I really want to ask the Lord, how should I love them? It's easy to jump ahead and smash the rock with my staff uh, because this is going to get the results I want. But maybe that's not what the Lord wants. And sometimes it's harder to, to sit back and trust and obey. That's really what, as Rick often talks up here about, is abiding in Him. Abiding in the Lord and letting Him direct our path. That's really what that abidance is. That's the essence of that. We have a couple, just a couple quick more minutes uh, the last question is, what else can we learn from Moses? Well, Moses wasn't able to enter the promised land, but he still let, led the people well with that end in mind. Moses more than just passed a baton to Joshua. He set Joshua up well right at the edge of the, the promised land. Now, uh, granted, entering the promised land, there was going to be struggles and fights and battles and everything, but Moses had brought him to the edge and he put him in a position to succeed. Not only that, but Moses gave Joshua experiences to help him lead. 
Josh, he took Joshua with him everywhere. He was Moses' right-hand man. Moses gave Joshua opportunities to lead in battle. While, Mo while Moses was still with him, he allowed Joshua to come into the tent of meeting with him. Joshua actually is the only one that Moses took on to the, up to the mountain when he met with the Lord, and the Lord gave him the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. When the Israelites sent out the 12 spies, Joshua was one of them. I remember years ago, I took a class from Dallas Theological Seminary professor Howard Hendricks, and he always said, never do anything alone. Always bring somebody with you because people watch what we do. People learn from our example of the good things we do, but also from our mistakes. And Moses did that with Joshua. And it's something that I try to do with my kids. So I try and bring them, even if I'm going to the bank, use that as an opportunity for them to see my life at work and see what I'm doing. You know, Joshua learned from, from Moses. In Joshua 24, it says, for it was the Lord, our God, who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the people through whom we passed, the peoples through whom we passed, and the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Moses got it or not Moses, sorry, Joshua got it, and he learned it from watching Moses. And I wonder if Joshua saw Moses' mistakes, specifically the one at the, at striking the rock, and he learned from that. I need to be dependent, like Joshua shared here. I need to, to, to be dependent on the Lord. Because the Lord asks Joshua later to do some pretty crazy things. Walk around Jericho seven times and blow trumpets. I mean, seriously, that's, that's crazy. And yet it works. And you look at the dependence that Joshua has. That's almost as crazy as speaking to a rock and having that rock pour forth water. But Moses modeled his life to Joshua. And I think that's something that we can do for our kids, but also for other people. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, trust to reliable men who are also qualified to teach others. And actually, when you look at that verse... I think I have it on the screen, if you want to, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2 2 verse. All right, maybe go one more. I think I have it in color. There you go. There's actually four different groups here. There's the, what, you have, what you, being Timothy, have heard me, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who are also qualified to teach others. And so there's four layers there. And so I think it's important for us to have who's the Paul in our life or who's the Moses in our life that is helping us to, to be growing in maturity and helping us to look to the Lord and grow in that dependence. And then who are the faithful men that we're teaching? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's other people in ministry. Maybe it's a Bible study that you're leading through capital. But who are the people that we're influencing and not only that, but what are we influencing them towards? Are we influencing them just in their own lives to be good people? No. We want them to be able to go out and influence other people as well. So as we think about Moses' life, in some ways I see him at the, at the edge of the promised land, and it seems sad to me because he wasn't able to enter in. 
But at the same time, look at what Moses was able to do and how he experienced the Lord's presence, how he set up Aaron well, or not Aaron, Joshua well, and how they were able to, the, the end goal was received when the Israelites were able to enter into the promised land. So this week, I just want to challenge you guys. Are there things like my wife shared, are there things that you need to receive that will glorify the Lord? Maybe they're hard. Maybe it's something that you don't want to receive, but yet the Lord is calling you to. You want to do that. You want to be able to hear God's voice, and you want to respond. You don't want to take the staff and beat the rock yourself. You want to hear his voice and respond accordingly. And then also, who are people that we can influence? Who are the Joshua's in our lives that we can make an influence on? So let me pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the example of Moses. Uh, thank you for... Uh, just how he um, was honest, uh, both in Scripture, and uh, thank you for helping us to see that uh, leadership is hard, and at times other people are looking towards us and are grumbling and complaining, uh, but help us to, to move forward, not with what pleases others, but what pleases you. Galatians 1.10 says, am I trying to please others or am I trying to please God? Help us live for an audience of one. It's in your name I pray. Amen.